Geopolitics and Empire is joined by privacy tactician Gabriel Custodiet, author of The Watchman Guide to Privacy and host of the Watchman Privacy Podcast. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Gabriel. It's nice to be here. And uh, my stance is that privacy is uh, fundamental to and even preceding freedom and individualism. So that's my stance. Yeah, very good stuff. And I've been thinking more and more of privacy. I've been thinking about it for a while, for a couple of decades, but now it's getting very serious. I've mentioned before, shout out to my uh, the Geopolitics and Empire sponsor, uh, Above Phone. I've got uh, Above Phone myself, a, a de-Googled phone, and I've got a separate phone. I'm planning as well to de-Google myself. And you were on my TNT radio show last month. And uh, on this episode, you're going to give us sort of an intellectual history of the death of privacy you sort of look at uh the period of 1890 to 1950 i didn't know you're writing a, a second book i've got a copy of your first book i highly recommend it good stuff a lot of useful um information and you argue that during this time the concepts of the plasticity plasticity of man found in darwinism and liberalism led to the birth of statism and of eugenics as well as the belief that we have inherited today that a scientific elite can and should try to solve all of society's problems a main idea in this book is that privacy as an explicit concern arises during this time as a response to growing centralization centralization being the antithesis of privacy and just before we connected i read a story about a from children's health defense europe about a holocaust survivor in germany now is going to be forced to be vaccinated um by the german government with the covid vaccine and then renditioned for a year to a closed psychiatric facility so crazy times we live in but um you know we're off to the races take us where you like uh gabriel yeah so the story that you just told and a lot of the craziness that's been happening in the last few years is available to anybody who has ears to hear and eyes to see right assuming that they are looking at the world through the alternative media which is the tends to be the truthful media but the reason that i chose to focus on a time period which is about 100 120 years ago is because like any historian i see a lot of this stuff happening today taking its origin uh back in time and if you look back in time back at history you can see some of these ideas taking shape you can see how they evolve and you can essentially see how we have been gaslighted um, and that's kind of the importance of history that that i find um, and let's let's start with with your main topic in the show which is empire so i think it's a, a fairly obvious truth that all organisms, all entities seek to enlarge their domain. And throughout history, that's kind of been held in check when it has been held in check in one way, which is I have a weapon, you have a weapon, so we're going to be peaceful. Now, when that is not occurring, when there is one entity with more power, then you have periods of, of tyranny, right? You have serfdom, or in the focus of, of my work in, in this book, the rise of statism and centralization. So the when you give an institution a power monopoly, a monopoly on violence, such as the West did with the state beginning around the late 19th century, then it can grow ceaselessly, right? It seeks to enlarge its domain. And when it grows ceaselessly, it applies itself to other parts of the world. And that is empire, right? So the empire that I'm describing in this book is modern centralization, um, which itself has a variety of origins. So how does this tie into privacy? This is kind of the interesting topic that I'm covering. So I see privacy as a social term. Privacy is not being alone, right? We already have a term for that. It's called isolation. Privacy is a, a social term where we can participate in society with minimal information, with, that, with giving minimal information to that society. So some people have also defined privacy as you know the ability to selectively reveal ourselves to the world, a similar concept. And so Privacy cannot be planned or arranged from a top-down approach. It exists precisely when things are unplanned, right? It's a bottom-up activity. And so external entities that strive to understand or protect privacy inevitably erase privacy. So for example, if we think about a privacy law, right? We have the 
the EU's general data protection regulation in the last few years, supposedly giving European citizens privacy. Well, the problem with that is in order for that law to apply to you, you have to be a European Union citizen, which means that you have to have the passport, right? You have to have the ID number. You have to have all of these paraphernalia of data that you have to give to the state in order for that law to apply to you. And not only that, but the second part is what how this law works is if you believe that somebody is not taking care of your data, you basically can go after them, right? You can take them to court. Now, getting taken to court itself is highly exposing, right? So the idea that, let me rephrase this, you cannot get privacy from government. Pure privacy exists when there is no government. And so decentralization thus offers a, a new lens to understand privacy, right? Which is something that an individual must grant to himself and which cannot be arrived at in any other way. And kind of to, to frame this in terms of the late 19th century, privacy as a term, interestingly enough, actually starts to be used commonly in the 19th century. And so a lot of the, the Marxists, the social constructionists will say, well, that's because privacy is a, um, is a construction of late capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. That's of course nonsense. We see that privacy is desired by every creature in the world there's some very interesting experiences, experiments rather. I think of John Calhoun's Universe 25 experiments where they put all these rats in an enclosure and they just kept breeding. And it got to the point where they had no privacy and they actually literally go insane and kill each other off. And this experiment was replicated. You have the phenomenon where deers, where if, if there are too many deer in a particular area, they can actually just start dying randomly. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing, but it shows you that privacy the concept of having some kind of isolation from the whole is built into our, our DNA. And so to kind of conclude my opening salvo here, right? It's not that modern people invented this idea of privacy or have some special claim to it. It's simply that they had more reason to be concerned about privacy, right? Modernity brought with it the privacy eroding phenomenon of the state, the technological revolution, mass urbanization, forensics, um, you think of the globe shrinking combustion and steam engines, advertising and various forms of mass surveillance, surveillance, all of which make privacy increasingly difficult to attain. And consequently, something that you wanted to define, you wanted to name it uh, and try to pursue it. So that's kind of the origin of, of my work. A message from our sponsors. Our friends at Above Phone are on a mission to help people break free of the algorithm ghetto. They're starting with our phones because 99% of people today are addicted to the big tech ecosystem. We have alternative technologies available that Ramiro and his team at Above Phone have been evaluating. These tools are superior, not just alternatives. Are you ready to play above the rules of the surveillance capitalists? Let's remove our reliance on them for information, apps, and communications and break free of their tracking. If we don't contribute to alternative software with our participation, we may lose the few choices we have. When you get a degoogled above phone, everything is made simple out of the box. Just plug your cell service in and go, or use Wi-Fi only. The above privacy suite provides important services using open source software that is run reliably and privately. It gives you a VPN, private email, search engine, encrypted chat, voice and video calls, a calendar service, and an anonymous internet phone number. Because getting people on better systems is so important, they've upped their dedication to support. With each phone, you get a 30-minute support call, 24-7 email, chat support, and a knowledge base. Just like with our food, water, healthcare, schooling, and security, our tech needs to be sovereign. Browse available phones now and subscribe to the privacy suite at abovephone.com. If you do find yourself stuck in a smart city, the Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in English and Spanish, so hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Yeah, two things came to mind uh, in your opening salvo. Well, I, I think you're spot on, because if we look at the, 
let's say the pre-modern world, the analog world where we didn't have, of course, this digital technology, but as you mentioned, this industrial technological revolution, it was much more easier to just disappear. Uh, you know, people were living in, you know, in, in the rural sort of lifestyle. Um, there weren't many ways to track people. You could just, you could easily just disappear and have privacy but today it's getting harder nearly near impossible you mentioned gdpr of the eu i'm an eu citizen i, I hate saying i'm an eu citizen i'm a croatian citizen but by default that makes me an eu citizen and just the idea alone of the whole gdpr for me when i first heard it i thought it was nonsense that's a centralized uh approach and and when you go to europe when i was last year in europe just browsing the internet is so much more cumbersome. You've got all these pop-ups because of the GDPR, like cookies and, and, and pop-ups when you visit websites, which you don't have here in, in Mexico. It's a much easier browsing experience uh, in, in Mexico than it is within the EU, which has it's censored. And then it's, they censor so many more websites like RT, um, even, you know, our, uh, so yeah, the, the, I, I don't agree with the whole EU so-called privacy approach because they've taken control of our privacy and they can tell us uh, how we can experience privacy versus, as you say, the decentralized uh, approach. And then, then the other thing that comes to mind are passports. The whole I, I hate that idea. Someone like myself who's got three passports and just have led always a nomadic lifestyle, I think people should be able to freely travel and we get these passports in World War One. Uh, um, they never go away. They were supposed to be temporary. And then you see all the governments, you know, at the League of Nations. No one removes it, and they just keep building on decentralization, like the theme of your book. And now we've got these building on the passports from uh, a century ago. They're building on that with these digital health passports that are going to be integrated, and there's no end in sight. And so. You know, any, any further thoughts there, as well as uh, I think you've you've uh, brought up a note to me um, regarding H.G. Wells. Uh, so, yeah, you know, what else is going on here? Yeah, well, there, there's there's a lot to discuss in, in all of this. And your right. The, the irony, right, of all of these websites in the EU, which now sometimes require you to actually give some real information in order to use services. Right. The irony is that these companies now have to play by these rules and they're afraid of getting of getting sued right by this very punitive law that they are requiring you to give some real information to to verify yourself so it's 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 the incorrect approach to privacy right um government as we said cannot grant you privacy now now the the topic of passports is interesting passports come about during this time that i'm speaking 1890 to 1930 italy i believe is the first country to issue a passport in 1901. And what's interesting is that um, it gets to the point where in World War One, right, the passport, right, the idea is that it's supposed to um, be kind of a, an agreement between various countries where um, I can come in here, you can go in there. But before people didn't need that agreement, right, uh, before you just travel, and there was there was no reason to to be checking identification. And so the passport comes about as states are solidifying and their borders are solidifying. And the interesting thing is when Italy has this passport in 1901, starting in World War I, they use it as a way to ensure that young men are not allowed to leave the country, right? So that they're trapped within their um, within the, the, the new boundaries of Italy because it's a new nation at this point uh, so that they cannot escape the draft. So it's, it's a passport. The passport system was a way of enclosing people into these nation states. Um, and so you mentioned H.G. Wells. Um, let's let's just talk about this. Uh, some of the other things happening in, in this period where the passports come about, because the passports are are kind of a symptom of some of the other things going on, right? Some of the other things at this time, we get the Federal Reserve, right, and central banking. We go off the gold standard. We have the income tax, right? The birth of the welfare state. Uh, eugenics becomes a, a huge deal, right? This is the progressive era. Then we have World War One, um, the beginning of the end of privacy and, and many other things that the listeners of the show value, we can trace back to this era. Now, the main idea that's unifying all of these is what I would call or consider utopianism. It's the idea taken on by people who are proponents of centralization. And it, it begins with the idea that something is broken and we need to fix it. And these people were, in, and H.G. Wells was a huge proponent of this idea. They, would, they were appealing to science 
primarily, right? So we have Darwinism, which really takes root at this time. H.G. Wells is one of the first human beings to have a fully scientific education, very influenced by Darwinism. And Darwinism fostered the sense that man is, right, he's plastic, right? He lacks any innate value. And, and therefore, he can, be, he can be transformed into something else. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing about Darwinism, um, for whatever good it has uh, brought to people, is that you do see, and, and for example, there, there's a subsection of the internet called the manosphere, and um, people talking about kind of men's issues. And one thing I notice about a lot of people these days who have this Darwinist, this inbuilt Darwinist, Darwinist outlook is that they appeal to biology for all of their answers. And, you know, biology cannot provide a value system, right? Um, and so it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting how these ideas ha have stuck with us. But to, to get back to my point here, during this time, we have Darwinism that's that's teaching that people are just animals and, and they kind of need to be directed, right? They need to be improved. And you have, so a new class of intellectuals arises. This is where we get the intelligentsia. Uh, academics grow significantly during this time. There's all kinds, I don't have the statistics at hand, but it, they grow exponentially. And all these intellectuals have problems that they see in the world that they want to solve, right? And so that's when they come up with central banking, et cetera. And ultimately, in this period, you have uh, a clash of ideas. It's what Thomas Sowell has called the constrained and the unconstrained vision. So on the one hand, the, the progressives have this idea that um, of this unconstrained vision, right? That human nature is either a fiction or, it, or it's capable of being molded and improved, right? Particularly by powerful organizations. Whereas the traditional, the 19th century, the Alexis de Tocqueville, the early America idea, of human nature is flawed. And so we're not going to give power over to these powerful entities like the state, right? We're going to solve things um, within this constrained vision of, of the frailty of the, of the faults of humankind, right? Uh, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson has this great line where he says, uh, don't essentially don't talk to me about the goodness of man, but let him be constrained by the bounds of a constitution, right? It, it's, it's that idea that's the constrained um, version of humanity. H.G. Wells, very interesting figure, um, very influential. George Orwell says of him that he says, thinking people who were born at the beginning of the century are in some sense Wells's own creation. I doubt whether anyone who was writing books between 1900 and 1920 in the English language influenced the young so much. So H.G. Wells was a huge influence. A lot of us think of him and we think of right War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man, the island of Dr. Moreau, and he did write those, but he stopped those around 1900, and he moved on to writing books like, surprise, surprise, The New World Order. And if you look back to your favorite H.G. Wells books, you can see in The Island of Dr. Moreau the sense that science, right, it's a book about a, a scientist who is trying to turn animals into humans, that scientists can change the physical matter of animals and improve them, right? There's this innate plasticity built into us. You can see in books like The War of the Worlds that the reason that humanity falls to the Martians is because they're not collectivist. They're all scattered, right? They're, they're, they rely too much on laissez-faire, right? You can see in The Invisible Man that if you are too individualistic, you become psychopathic, right? So there's all these tax, attacks on individualism that H.G. Wells would um, talk about throughout his the rest of his career. And he wrote a lot of books after 1900. He worked tirelessly for 40 years on the cause of world government. A lot of the stuff he wrote appears in um, United Nations documents and, and, and other uh, big uh, world kind of globalist organization documents. They have the language, especially the ideas of H.G. Wells. And what H.G. Wells thought fundamentally is that humans are just animals and that in order for us to have a good society, we need constructive design, right? We need to get rid of laissez-faire and decentralization, right? That has become distasteful and irresponsible. And we need this, we need to have more direction so that we can improve not the individual, which is worthless, but the whole, right? The, the greater good. That's where a lot of these ideas come from. And H.G. Wells is a central figure of all of that.
Yeah, I recall a quote from Wells where he, I've got his book, The Open Conspiracy. You mentioned as well, The New World Order. And he said, he openly writes, quote, you know, some will hate the New World Order and die fighting the New World Order. And uh, someone who helped me really understand this was, you know, G. Edward Griffin. I think he's in his 90s now. I had the pleasure of meeting him over a decade ago. And it's this idea of collectivism. I think that's the key phrase. It's not particularly communism or, or socialism. It's collectivism. And this idea that it, you know the group is more important than the uh, individual. And you mentioned as well eugenics. So that was really getting off to the races in the 1900s. The British, you know, principally it started with the British and then uh, the Americans and then exported to germany and it's never gone away it just continues to camouflage itself as climate change narrative so many people today are just useful idiots and don't understand that climate change is just eugenics dressed up and uh the pandemic or the health basically healthcare today is just again it's it's another way of dressing up eugenics and um the biosecurity state which i riff on a lot i think I've, this is the final frontier when it comes to privacy and and it's related to the idea of collectivism now the state is uh it's it's wanting to take over control of our bodies so you've got no more privacy and it, it goes to what i just mentioned that in, in germany they they are going to force vaccinate a holocaust survivor i mean it's crazy the irony there germany and and rendition them to a psych psychiatric ward um and it just really seems like we're reaching this apex of uh tyranny totalitarianism biosecurity state everything you're talking about this centralization of power and it's beyond it's it's global now it's beyond just nation states the centralization of power at the national level it's at the supranational level like the eu that's a regional um you know global governance structure and then at a world government level where you've got the who uh telling patreon basically patreon you know uh terminating my geopolitics and empire account because some of my guests uh clashed with the who's idea of uh eugenicist health care so now we're all and all of our government officials even here in mexico you can clearly see they're taking orders the development projects in the city uh they're funded by the rockefeller foundation who have a global outlook um, they're the same people working with wells and so our local governments now are operating on instructions from the global level so for me if you ask me where are we, we are in we've been in world government for a very long time it just has not been obvious and so just your take on this sort of we're, we're like at the mount kilimanjaro of the end of privacy it's like this huge apex and it's just going to keep getting uh worse yeah so um it's it's pretty clear i i think while i'm speaking here that a lot of the ideas that happened at the turn of the 20th century are are in full effect and are in full effect today and you know what is that the what is, and, and you can read, like I was reading an article today, people, once again, this is a common theme in the last few years saying that shorter people, uh, we should encourage and genetically engineer shorter people because they take up fewer resources um, and do not harm the planet so much. So there's all kinds of ideas uh, of eugenics. That is the the, alter, the altering of people, the selection of people based on criteria that the, that the scientific elite have selected. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff, so let's talk about kind of the origins of, of eugenics then, because that's kind of what we're at. And what is what is the assumption of eugenics? And by the way, early early 20th century, almost everybody you know was a proponent of eugenics at one point in time. Um, we're talking, you know, writers like Virginia Woolf. Um, uh, we're talking um, even um, Winston Churchill. Like so many people were even just in passing proponents of eugenics because why, why, why were they proponents of eugenics? Because we had reached a point in time where around 1906, you have the birth of the welfare state in Britain. Now, all of a sudden you have this sense that, right, the state, right, the state, the nation is kind of 
wrapping its arms in a border around all these people claiming it for its own, giving them passports, telling them now what they can and can't do, and saying that you are, we are going to take care of you, right? So you look at Woodrow Wilson in the United States, who had some similar ideas. He writes a book in 1889 called The State, and he says that, quote, government is organized force, law is the will of the state. And then he says that the state is the organic body of society. Without it, society could hardly be more than a mere abstraction. So you, ha you have this valoration of the state, that the state is here to take care of people, right? The welfare state. And you can easily see how um, the welfare and the kind of taking care of people would be leveraged to encourage people to enter war, right? You're now defending the country that is your mother, right? The motherland is, is protecting you. You can see a lot of that at work. And so you have this idea that the state is there to take care of you, to protect for you, to protect you. And the fundamental idea of statism is that the state should intervene for the greater good. And you had all these pseudo intellectuals at the time saying that morally degenerate people, people with low IQs, the IQ test was developed by eugenicists, by the way. Um, these people are harmful to society. They had all the statistics, right? They would say, these people are bad for our economy. They're bad for our health system. They're bad for our nation. And they had all these words for these kinds of people. And it became a quick consequence to say that, so these people should be sterilized, right? And in some cases, a lot of people were calling for their execution. Um, like, like quite seriously, but at the very least, a sterilization. And so you see kind of the, the impetus here where we have said that we have ceded our power, our responsibility to something else, right? The state, and therefore the state is going to protect us. And it's going to do that in a way that sometimes harms us, but it's always for the greater good. So that's kind of the, the main philosophical bedrock of that period of time and also where we are today. And you, you mentioned that article, and I saw that as well. The mainstream news today saying that um, we should be shorter. We should mate with shorter people. I'm a tall dude, and my kids are tall thanks to my Croatian genetics. Uh, I think Croatians actually, I read somewhere, we're like the seventh tallest uh, uh, group uh, on the planet, something like that. And, um, and in, in this article you referenced, it's talking about climate change. And it goes exactly to what I was just saying before you mentioned that. It's climate change is eugenics. And I've had a lot of folks from, you know, the Schiller Institute or the, the LaRouche folks who talk about this uh, and, and and others that this environmental fascism. Um, I had a, I talked to Lawrence Freeman, who travels often to Africa. He said in Africa, many consider climate change, uh, colonialism, uh, environmental dictatorship and it's it's a weapon to stop industrialization and and to promote deindustrialization which is again this darwinist eugenicist philosophy and um it's 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 just mind uh, boggling and where do you see like i said i feel like we're in in the 21st century now um and I like what you're doing. I, I very much appreciate it. I think we have to just stop and look at the genesis of, of where we are today, where it sort of started. And I'm looking forward to your 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 second book uh, on this. And, uh, you know, where do you sort of see things headed? You know, my, my I always bang on about on the podcast, this algorithm ghetto. I, th I, I really see them trying to push us into this sort of dystopian sci-fi total recall sort of uh system where basically it's all about population control where they monitor every aspect of our lives and that they want to give themselves the ability to to create these choke points at where they can uh affect our our, our food security our energy security our our work um you know uh security our mobility uh you know down to the level of like geofencing where uh, you know, you you've heard about those Oxford, um, uh, what is it, fifteen minute walkable cities now, and you can only leave your zone again. That's like so dystopian. Your zone, right? A uh, hundred times a year. And so, if you want to visit your mother for the hundred and first time, uh, the AI cameras or drones will take a snapshot of you leaving your zone, automatically deduct, uh, you know, a fine uh, from your 
a bank account and it's insane and so <laughs> where do you see all of this headed yeah and there's a there's an article which as far as i can tell is completely serious from the guardian it's called you can look it up it's called why genghis khan was good for the planet this was published like 10 years ago and and the author says that Genghis Khan wiped out, he killed basically a huge percent of the world population. And this guy calculates how many, how much carbon that removed from the world. And I reread this article several times. And I know that the uh, the Guardian is, is certainly left-leaning, totally, totally communist, if we're being honest. And I reread it several times. It was completely serious. Like the things that people say in pursuit of the quote unquote greater good, according to how they see it, regardless of the people that it tramples upon, is a total corruption, right? That idea is a total corruption of um, the 19th century, the, the great 19th century where uh, people were individuals, they believed in individualism, in, in responsibility, they believed that humans were innately good, right? And all these environmentalists who, by the way, were in favor of destroying a virus, which, well, supposedly is part of nature, right? There's all kinds of inconsistencies, right? Nature is red in tooth and claw. There's nothing particularly valuable about nature. It's only humans that give nature its value. Without humans, nature would would be valueless. We there would be nobody to appreciate it. So all of these uh, environmentalists, uh, it's 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 bankrupt just just at its very foundation. Now, in terms of where we're going, I, I want to answer that by tapping back into history just a little bit. And you know, you mentioned the the body, right? The the state's control over the body. Well. It, what's interesting, and in, in, in my work, Watchman Privacy, and and in the intellectual history I'm writing that writing right now, which will be available in the next few months, it's not available now. But what what happen what happens is if something becomes if if we start to survey something, we start to have this desire to control it. Right, that's another thing that's happening in in the early 20th century, and. You know, DNA was discovered around 1969. Um, heredity was kind of finally understood from um, uh, Mendel only around 1900. Uh, DNA would be mapped out in 1953, interestingly, by two guys with eugenicist tendencies. And what you have here is kind of the opening of Pandora's box, right? This is where uh, this gave a lot of room for the eugenicists to say, look, we understand the human body. We understand this stuff and maybe someday we can control it. And we're, we're getting to the point, which is what I'll say in a moment, where we are starting to control that stuff and certainly have uh, the potential to do that. Um, it's around this time that Louis Pasteur uh, discovers vaccines, right? And the vaccine was, the vaccine in the, the discovery of vaccine was perfect for the timing because what, is, what does the vaccine say? It says, you will take this as the individual because you must protect the greater good, right? You must sacrifice, you must make the sacrifice for the collective good. And you have to, otherwise other people are supposedly at risk. So the body, right, becomes the body politic around this time. There's the Supreme Court case, uh, Buck versus Bell, 1927. A lot of people have been pointing to that in the last couple of years where the, uh, the great justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he basically says that, and this is worth quoting, he says, we have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be, I think he's, he might be thinking of World War One. It may be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. He's talking about um, uh, inferior, quote unquote, inferior people. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, what's interesting in this disturbing uh, summary of a Supreme Court decision is that he's saying that he's appealing to the vaccine, the idea of a vaccine, right, as somebody sacrificing for the greater good as justification for eugenics. And this fits entirely with this ethic, right, where we put the whole as greater than the individual. Therefore, any sacrifice by any individual is is perfectly fine. And so anyway, to, to get to your point where where are we going with all of this? Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, the two competing kind of dystopian novels of the early 20th century, you have Huxley's Brave New World and you have 
Orwell's 1984. Huxley's came out, I think, 15 years before, but it was actually more prescient, I think. And Huxley actually sent a letter to Orwell and he said, look, this idea of the state coming and crushing you, completely cornering you, no privacy, et cetera, just police state. I don't think that's how it's going to go. And Huxley's vision in Brave New World is one where people enjoy their servitude, right? So of course, in, in, in Brave New World, they are chemically created to be more susceptible to servitude, right? From, from an embryo level, but they're also conditioned psychologically to be consumers of entertainment, to have no sense of interiority, to despise the concept of alone time and books and reading. Um, and they're, they're kind of, they have this, at once, this genetic modification that lets them be like this, and also this kind of Pavlovian classical conditioning that um, that is controlling them. And of course, it's being directed by a scientific elite. And to kind of have a counterpoint to the police state idea that is certainly possible in, in the future, I can certainly see that coming. You have a lot of guests who talk about this. We see how a lot of people are um, simply totally have bought into entertainment, which is a Latin word, which means to, I believe, to um, to take hold of the mind, right? Entertainment. So people are, are watching their football, they're watching their Netflix, they're playing their video games online, right? All these young men who would otherwise be revolutionaries are putting all their revolutionary energy into Call of Duty. And you have virtual reality that is soon to become a thing. Um, you have CRISPR technology where um, people will soon be able to select the appropriate genes for their offspring. Um, so you have this, this world of genetic modification, of um, bodily modification. I think of Elon Musk's neural link, which is a, a chip that you put into your brain, which can regulate your emotions, which can even change your change the way you think and feel about certain things. I see this as just as much a viable future where people are slaves, but they're either oblivious to it or they enjoy it as opposed to just having a, a police state where people live in fear, they might uh, come to enjoy their servitude as as Huxley predicted in his book. Yeah, just to go back again, there's a lot here, but when you were talking about the eugenics and the, the vaccines, again, just before we connected, I saw Patrick Bet David of the Valuetainment podcast, which is great. He just uh, posted a interesting, he says, interesting data, personal stat. You know, when he interviewed, uh, interviewed I think, Andrew Tate, he says the Andrew Tate podcast got 11 million views in three months with 49,000 comments. He just interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson or just a clip where he's pressing Tyson on the COVID vaccines. And that clip got, say, 900,000 views in 48 hours, but it got 43,000 comments, almost the same of, you know, comparable to Andrew Tate's, um, you know, in, in, two, in two hours of being posted into the Neil deGrasse uh, clip got as many comments as Tate's uh, did in three months. And he says the comments show how upset and furious people are with mainstream media and certain health experts only telling one side of the story. And that clip, I agree with Bet David that, you know, DeGrasse Tyson said, no, the science, you know, the sound, we all know, you know, the, the, the system is sound. You cannot question the eugenicist, um, you know, system of science we have today. Uh, stamped and approved by FDA and CDC and WHO, and he says everything's gone through the correct processes, which is a lie. It, it, they they haven't. It's all experimental. It's just we we all know. And he's lying through his teeth. I, I mean, is this guy really that dumb, or is he just he's lying through his teeth that uh, they were given emergency authorization, nothing has been tested, uh, and so uh, and someone posted I thought interesting comment. A new paradigm is shifting where people are starting to use podcasts as their source of news as opposed to the traditional media's one-sided propaganda bias. But your second point, I think it's crucial, and I. I I'm I'm in awe. I can't believe like I was just recently in the States and people that I know, um, they enjoyed their servitude. I think it's going to be like 75% Huxley, 25% Orwell, where by and large, it's going to be this um, system, as you described, where people are just on drugs, pharmaceuticals, legal and illegal entertainment. And then the few that get out of line will 
get the Orwell treatment. They'll have their accounts turned off. They'll have their homes swatted, agents sent to their home. We see that now. You pay, post something on Facebook, like in England or you know in the Anglosphere, you're getting cops showing up at your house now. Uh, and I've had conversations just recently in America where Americans were telling me, they literally told me, I'm not exaggerating. They said they want tyranny. They prefer a strong state, tyrannical. Uh, they want the state telling everyone what to do. They prefer security over liberty. They've told me this like a month ago. I couldn't, I've got no response. I'm just, just sitting there with my jaw dropping like, what happened to you people? And some of these people were, if we go back 10, 15 years ago, we're not like this. They were Americana, you know, and it's just mind boggling, especially the last five to 10 years, these sophisticated Orwellian or Huxleyan systems of mind control with, you know, the, the GMO and the foods, who, are, who knows what they're putting in there and, and the pharmacological. Now, a lot of these people are on you know, prescription drugs and, and the bombardment of the TV and social media. They've literally reprogrammed people's minds and i can't believe they're shouting at me americans today they want tyranny and the government you know the nanny states and i'm just besides myself i'm like what what can you do with a populace like this i mean <laughs> yeah i i don't i don't know what you can do i i'm i'm waking people up in, in my own way with my show i think you are i think the the comments that you referred to on the Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a, who's a who's a total um, scientific elite. I've, I've seen him on the Joe Rogan podcast where he says things like, "Science is the only system we have to find the truth." I mean, sorry, I I, I love I love the scientific method, but that finds probability and not truth, right? Um, you know, the, this idea that trust the science. Um, it's as if the science offers a bible of answers and is not a method whose very consistency, to the extent that it has consistency, has been the regular overturning of invalid answers, according to a method that, that as I said, only finds probability. So um, what we need is open discourse, obviously. All these people, anytime somebody is banned, I immediately say, okay, what is that person saying? Because they're probably saying something true, right? Um, tyranny is... Um, um, afraid of uh, of of the truth, and so it it, it must cover it up. So, um, and anytime somebody's censored, you obviously need to go look at them. Andrew Tate is a great figure. I recently did an, an episode on him. He has a lot of techniques that he's implemented into his life. He's talking about masculinity, which I think might actually be the decline of masculinity. Might actually be the ultimate uh, grand narrative about the failure of our society in the last certainly 50 years. Uh, he talks about that. He's a great figure. He might get suicided here because he's in a Romanian jail, um, and uh, that will be sad. But um, to 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 the broader point, what? How do we wake these people up? Um, I do think that some people are awake. They're using alternative media. They're listening to podcasts, which are much more difficult to be censored than YouTube, uh, et cetera, because you put your you put your you put your file into the podcast directory and it's spread out to a bunch of different podcast directories. And then I always go the extra mile. I put it on all the alter alternative media. I have a newsletter, right? They can't take a list of your. Um, the, the people's email addresses that you have. That's one of the great uncensorable techniques is to just get a newsletter going. So um, you just got to do what you can. And I'm I'm not a catastrophist. I think that there are solutions. That's kind of what I talk about mostly is solutions to these problems. And I do think that catastrophism is, uh, is kind of a psyop where they want people to check out. They want people to exit the system and not make, not take part in the opportunity to get all this wealth that's just flowing around. Um, that's kind of my my um, uh, revisionist take on all of it. I think that people should uh, certainly have backup plans. I talk about a lot of that stuff, get off the grid, et cetera, but also have your foot in the door, getting some of this money, making money, getting wealthy, becoming one of the owners of the world along with these other people um, and enjoying some of the, the fruits of the world we have in case things aren't as bad as we think. Yeah, and I listened to your Tate's uh, episode. Well, I I, I read it because you put out also out a Substack version of text, and I'm not a big say fan of Andrew Tate, but um, and I I, I shared it on my on some of my socials, and people were commenting. Uh, but I think he's a great 
case study and what you did uh, as a case study it was great, but it also shows the limits of someone to his extent with I don't know how many driver's licenses he's got and passports and uh, flags that he still gets caught up. Um, and so, you know, you, you still want to do all of these things, but um, they can still, you know, get you. Uh, I guess the lesson is there to go a bit more under the radar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, say, yeah. Yeah. Not, 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 not purposefully have your, um, your network make you the most Googled person on the planet, which is what Andrew Tate did. That was purposeful. He loves the attention. Rule number one is don't, don't have a huge public profile. Cause then you definitely put a target on your back. That was Andrew Tate's, uh, faults. But I think if you follow his strategies and maybe don't have a huge public profile, that's certainly a winning combination. And my episode on, on Tate, we just, he just talks about, I talk about, his strategies of having multiple uh, passports, having multiple residencies, multiple driver's license, which you can use in other countries to think about what countries can extradite you and which cannot. Think about what parts of the world, for example, the Middle East, are relatively exempt from Western powers. Um, So just to kind of think think at a high level in, in the way Andrew Tate does, if nothing else, that's a reason to listen to him. Yeah, and just a personal example, when I was fleeing COVID-1984 from Kazakhstan in 2020, um, I wouldn't have been able to leave uh, if I hadn't had, you know, my it, it, my my second passport, my Croatian passport, because the EU was not allowing third country nationals to pass through the EU. And just me having that, not even, I'm the only one in my family who's got it. So um, just uh, my family was allowed to pass through as well uh just by me having it you know one member of the family we were all able to pass through europe to get back to mexico during covid 1984 so without that you know second of my three passports uh i would have been stuck in kazakhstan and uh you know who knows (laughs) what would have gone on and yeah and um i i think we still need to keep trying to mitigate you know this is what i do um you know, you also talk about whether privacy is still possible today. Like you said, you're more you're more optimistic. And regardless of how difficult it is, I mean, I think it's just natural for a human being to try to fight in the daily life to retain as much privacy as possible, even in the face of uh, an overwhelming totalitarian dystopian state. Uh, you're still going to try to do things to protect as much as you can your your privacy and mitigate the surveillance state. And that's what I'm doing. That's what you're doing. What I think a lot of people are still trying to do. And we're going to leave for a second episode in the future, um, a, a more how-to or practical, uh, uh, an episode of, of practical ways or strategies that, that, that people can uh, take to protect their privacy. But, uh, you know, any final thought for us, uh, as well as, you know, the best way for people to to find you, your work, uh, and support you? Yeah, so I have two aspects to to my brand in Watchman Privacy. One is the historical philosophical approach that I've kind of talked about in this episode. The other is pure privacy techniques. So I have a I have a guide. I have some courses. You can just go to watchmanprivacy.com. I have a newsletter. You can follow me. If you're following me in any way, my podcast, you'll find out, um, you'll you'll encounter my ideas and you'll also discover when I'm releasing the book that I kind of described in this episode. That's not good marketing to talk about something that you can't uh, give to somebody, but in the next few months that should come out. My central goal is to watch the watchers. So to understand what people are doing, what people have done, and to give people uh, a mindset and techniques, tools, et cetera, to help them, especially from a privacy level, which I think is a little bit underrated, to help them maximize their individual freedom. The individual is the only true thing in the universe. The only thing we can be certain of is that we experience the universe through our own mind. And so anybody who preaches collectivism is preaching something that is anti-reality. And obviously we have to, sometimes if we wanna be part of a, a group, we have to make certain sacrifices, but those must be chosen by us. And the individual will always be the supreme entity. And let's not forget that. Yeah, and I like your, you know, when I found you and had you first on TNT and whatnot, uh, I like your, I mean, I, I also follow, for many years, I've been 
reading books on privacy and following different privacy experts and i feel like you have a sober approach an organic approach you don't hype stuff you don't like some say um you know they hype different approaches and say oh this is going to you know make deal uh with your privacy it's going to save you and 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 i i've heard you know some people when i've shared some of your stuff they they've criticized you oh he uses uh i don't know this that software or that software and i disagree with them i mean everything's evolving there's software that i used to use that i thought was good and then you realize it's not so good and then you switch and no one gets it right it's an it's a battlefield that we're on that's changing daily uh you know i used to big be a big supporter of start page and start mail some things changed with them i'm i still use them but not so much anymore you know and so uh things are just constantly shifting and um again uh, i recommend everyone get gabriel's first book subscribe to his podcast find him on twitter all the links will be in the descri description and again thank you for being uh, for the first time on geopolitics and empire gabriel yep stay dangerous out there i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast the website is geopoliticsandempire.com and i encourage you to sign up to the free email list that notifies you of every new podcast and other important updates the email list and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's almost impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently strikes videos. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit, Twitter, and LinkedIn take down posts. After the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, or the Atlantic Council, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account at one point. In April of 2022, the Department of Homeland Security had PayPal ban us for life. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the entire podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can support this guerrilla signal by donating via DonorBox, Buy Me a Coffee, Subscribestar, or Crypto. You can purchase a consultation with the host to talk about expatriation, geopolitics, or podcasting, you can also become a monthly or annual member via Stripe and receive benefits such as partaking in a monthly member Zoom call, get access to a weekly recording of my random thoughts, and a private Telegram channel. Thank you for listening.